Well, again, we are continuing to learn about David in this new sermon series on the life of David. We're looking at the early life of David still and considering what made him him, what made David unique. And any discussion of who David was needs to include a discussion about music. David, of course, was a major contributor to the music that God's people have enjoyed for now millennia. He, of course, is very critical to the existence of the book of Psalms, and there are other songs, too, that we'll consider uh, that were written by David. But I want us to start really broad here this morning and then hone in. I want us to even you know, back up from David, back up from music, and, and talk about art generally. Music, of course, is a subset of art. And as we go through this, we'll get narrower and narrower in our focus to consider music and then to consider David the musician. But I want to start with this thought, that music is good for the soul. And I mean that literally. I mean that quite literally. Music is good for the soul. It's a a phrase that we can use very non-literally, but in this sense, I mean it in the most literal sense. And as we think about this, we have to start with God himself. God, of course, is an artist. You could say that God is the artist. God is the first artist to ever exist. When we think of the ideals that make great art, harmony and beauty and truth, all of that is bound up in the nature of God himself. All of that flows from God. He is the foundation of all art. And creation itself is God's revelation of himself as an artist. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1 together, those first five verses of Genesis 1, where God reveals himself as sovereign artist. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. That's the first day, the first day of creation, morning and evening, light and darkness. And light and darkness play a pretty prominent role when it comes to art, don't they? Light and darkness are essential. And as you read through Genesis 1 and into chapter 2, God keeps creating. He keeps creating works of art. And even though in Genesis chapter 3 comes the fall, sin enters the picture, chaos ensues, that doesn't take away completely the beauty of God's creation. Now, there's a lot of ugly in God's creation now. There's death. There's suffering, there's bloodshed, but even in the midst of a fallen world, can't we see the beauty of God? Those sunsets still exist, don't they? The birth of a newborn baby still exists. It's amazing. But another place we see this is all the way to the back of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 4, one of my favorite verses is Revelation 4.11. I'll start in verse 9. But this idea of God as creator and God as artist, it continues through the entirety of the Bible, even into the future. When you see these scenes in heaven and these songs that are sung in the presence of God, it's just absolutely amazing to consider how God as supreme sovereign creator is so central to the thinking of his saints. Revelation 4 verse 9, it says, When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, look at this, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. Another way to say that is, because of your will, they were, and then they were created. Because of the will of God, the things that didn't exist came into existence and were fashioned together beautifully by the sovereign creator artist. 
it is very, very important to remember that God, as creator, is the Lord of art, the Lord of beauty, the Lord of harmony and truth. And as God was creating, it culminated in the creation of man. The creation of man who was made in God's image. When God made man and woman in his image, he was communicating aspects of his nature through them. You can communicate aspects of the nature of God that other creatures cannot. You are a particular vessel in God's creation because you are made in his image and people can discern things about God because of who you are. We reflect, as human beings made in God's image, we reflect the immaterial ideals that make up art. I've already mentioned harmony and beauty and truth, but things like logic and communication, the way that we can create things as God creates in a different sense, but we still create, it reflects the image of God. We're made currently a little lower than the angels, but when it comes to art, No one can do it like humans can, because we're made in God's image. There's a great little book on all this by Francis Schaeffer, one of my favorite authors, titled Art and the Bible. Very small. Look at that. You could read that, right? Very, very tiny. Almost pocket size, okay? Art and the Bible. And one of the things that Schaeffer says in this book regarding art is that we never find an animal, non-man, making a work of art. On the other hand, we never find men anywhere in the world or in any culture in the world who do not produce art. Creativity is a part of the distinction between man and non-man. All people are to some degree creative. Creativity is intrinsic to our mannishness, a term that Schaefer uses a lot, mannishness. We have this artistic, this creative ability because we have been made in the image of the supreme artist, the supreme creator. Now, of course, if you've been around artists to any degree, or if you've studied history, particularly church history, you know that there's a danger that we face when it comes to art in that we can quickly start to worship art. Art can become an idol in the hearts of people. It can be used for self-worship too. And this all depends on how you use art, how you use music, for example. Is your art directed toward God as a form of worshiping the God who created all things? Or is your art used as a vehicle to point to yourself? There are a lot of musicians. Could we call them musicians? A lot of people on the radio today who do something that they call music who are making art for the wrong reason. And that art is hollow. It's purposeless. It's aimless. It's directionless. Yet if it's toward God, it is very good. So as God's people, when we start to consider art, when we start to consider music, we must not lose sight of who God is and who we are. And there's a great psalm that David wrote, a song, you could say, that David wrote, Psalm 8, that gets to this. Psalm 8, verses 3 through 6, David says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Man is a little lower than God, or your translations may say a little lower than the angels. Man in his fallen state in this creation is a little lower than these things. And yet God takes thought of us and God has put all things under our feet. God has made us stewards over the earth. And that includes this realm of art. We are to create in the image of God. We are made in the image of God to create even as God has created. Though there are two types of creating. God creates by speaking things into existence that once were not. And we are to create out of the creation that already exists. And when you do that, it is very good. You know, it's a beautiful thing when a woodworker puts something together that is just so beautiful, that reflects something about God. It reflects something about the image of God in which we were made. It's beautiful when there's a 
new Christian song that you hear about and you listen to it and you hear the harmony of voices and you also hear the truth of the words and you hear the careful instrumentation that accompanies just right the theme of the song. That's creativity and that is beautiful and that is good. As long as we are creating toward God, for God, that gives it purpose. Creating for self is nothing but idolatry. There's another psalm, Psalm 115, one of my favorite psalms that will really impact your worldview if you allow it. Psalm 115, the first eight verses. As you consider how creating toward God is a good and beautiful thing and creating toward self is idolatry and ugly, consider what Psalm 115 says about creating for self. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? I love verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Now consider their works of art. It says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And look at verse 8. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. This is what happens when art becomes an end to itself. It's purposelessness, and it's death. But art, as a vehicle toward the living God, has great purpose, and God will use it greatly. We must not lose sight of who God is and who we are, and when we create toward God, that gives our creativity purpose. Well, let's get more specific and focus just on music. Music is a creation of God, as Jerry was even reminding us there at the beginning. These throats that he's given us, these voices that we have, this is God's design. We are called to make music. We are called to glorify him with music. And music itself does put God's glory on display. In fact, I would say the mere existence of music is evidence of God's existence. The mere existence of music is evidence of the glory of God. And you can use this in your evangelism. I have a a friend who's now essentially agnostic. And one of the arguments I've used with him before is based on music because he loves music as I do. And I asked him one day, as he's considering does God exist or does not exist, I asked him to consider the reality that the sound of a well-trained symphony, it sounds infinitely better than the sound made by those same instruments being thrown down a flight of metal stairs, doesn't it? (laughs) Now, what's the deal with that? Why does one sound better than the other? Well, it's almost like there's some order to this universe, isn't there? It's almost like, you know, things fit in certain ways, and they don't fit in other ways, and we can identify when something is chaotic and therefore ugly. Well, that's all rooted in the God of order the God who designed all things, the God who made the water cycle to do its thing here on the face of the earth, the God who is over all has given order and harmony and beauty in his creation that attests to him. And music is a great vehicle of putting that on display, isn't it? You see, as uh, creatures here, we cannot evolve to find pleasure in utter chaos. It can't happen. Now, the only way we could get close to that is by the effects of sin. That's what Scripture teaches us. But there's no true pleasure in chaos. The God of order has wired us to find pleasure in order, and that's clearly evident in music. And because of this, God is honored when His image bearers make music appropriately. God is honored when people who are made in His image make music appropriately and toward Him. That's part of the appropriately 
term there. When we're making music for his glory and when we make music that reflects his nature. So I want to go on a side note a bit here because I've got time this morning. And so I want to dwell on this when we think about appropriate music versus inappropriate music. I've already mentioned here that the fall introduced chaos into the world. The fall introduced idolatry into the world. And these two things can affect art. These two things really can truly affect music. We see it every day if we're paying attention. And it's now our work as God's people to discern good from bad, even in the realm of art and even in the realm of music. It's our work to discern good sound from bad sound. It's our work to discern good lyrics, good words from bad lyrics and bad words. So there must be some standards. What was that you were mentioning earlier, Jerry, about parts and harmonies? Melissa's grandparents were big on that. Uh, We would have conversations about church, and uh, they were upset often that the church took, their local church took the hymnals away and put the lyrics on the screen so you can't see the music and you can't do four-part harmony anymore. There is something beautiful about four-part harmony, isn't there? Or three-part harmony or two-part harmony. Or as her grandpa said, and I apply it to myself, uh, there's something chaotic about prison style where you're behind a few bars and looking for a key. That's that's my approach to singing. We have to have some sort of standards here when it comes to music about what is good and what is bad. In fact, for several years, I did a music review, a Christian music review at the end of the year, where I would comb through four to 500 albums that were released called Christian albums to try to find the best ones that I consider to be the best. And to do that, I didn't just, you know, whatever made me feel good, and that was the best. It was, there was a rubric involved. I'm, I tend to be a little overly orderly with some things, and I created a scoring system. Well, there needs to be some sort of a standard for what is good music and what is bad music. My scoring system, by the way, prioritized lyrics, but right behind lyrics was the sound of the music, because both are very, very important. God is honored by order. He is not honored by chaos. But as I say that too, and as we think about what music is appropriate and what music is not appropriate, consider this, that doesn't mean that there's one style of music that's the best for all time. That's not what that means either. And that needs to be said to Christians. Because sometimes Christians can get a little persnickety about what particular genres are the best. And that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, um, change is good. Change is good. Not every generation had Bach or Mozart. There are different styles of music that exist across the world. There are different styles of music that exist in this church as preferences. And that's okay. Things can change. That is okay. Again, going back to Francis Schaeffer in this little book I told you about, he says in there that many Christians reject contemporary painting and contemporary poetry simply because they feel threatened by a new art form. Styles of art form change, and there is nothing wrong with this. As a matter of fact, change is one difference between life and death. Especially in a fallen world, things change. And I wonder, over the years, how many church splits there have been over something like removing the stained glass that's been up for so long, or changing the style of music from one to the other and not being able to come up with a compromise. That should not be the case among God's people. Things change, and that's okay. Yet there still needs to be some form of standard if we are to honor God appropriately. While participating in music, as we return back to the main thought, participating in music is exercising God's image in us. And it's no wonder, because of that reality, it is no wonder that music truly is good for our souls. Consider in the life of David, and let's go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 16. Consider in the life of David how he first came to Saul, not as a warrior who was going to defeat Israel's enemies, but he came to Saul as a musician. That's the reason why we have this first interaction between David and Saul in 1 Samuel 16. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 16, it says that a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. And David, of course, brought the gift of bread, he brought the gift of wine, but he also brought the gift of music. That's why he was asked to come and be with Saul. He was bringing the gift of therapy 
through music. Now let's look at this ordeal again as we focus on the role of music in all of this and Saul's response. 1 Samuel 16, starting in verse 14. It says, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that the... I lost my place. That he... Sorry. Uh, when the evil spirit from God is on you, that he shall play the harp with his hand, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Now drop down to verse 23. Look at this, how this played out. So it came about whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. That is like real deal music therapy, isn't it? That, that's real deal music being used by God in his creation to reach the heart of an image bearer and affect him for good. Through the centuries and through millennia, it's been recognized that music is a form of therapy. Perhaps many of you unwind by listening to music, and that's because you are made in the image of God, and God has made music to have an effect on you. In this relationship between David and Saul, there are two more times where this happened, once in verse, or chapter 18, once in chapter 19, where Saul was being terrorized and David came in to play for him. And that image bearer's response, Saul's response, was to be healed. Music was therapy and continues to be therapy. The world even recognizes this, though they have no basis for it. It was Benedict Spinoza who was by no means a believer. But Benedict Spinoza said, music is good to the melancholy. And if you are more melancholy, you know that. Music is good to you. The world doesn't have a basis for that. It's a mystery to them. But we have a basis. The God of all creation made it that way. And the image of God in us is central to understanding the role that music plays. So now, as you've been equipped a bit with a theology of music, let's consider the role that music had in David's life. And I want to start by asking you to turn to Psalm 151 in your Bibles. If you like Roman numerals, that's Psalm CLI, Psalm 151. And uh, go ahead and raise your hand when you get there. <laughs> oh, oh, your stops at CL, not CLI? Well, here's something interesting. There is no Psalm 151, so I'm sorry I've tortured you. You can stop turning. Uh, there is no Psalm 151. Let me introduce you to what the uh, Septuagint has as Psalm 151. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's what Jesus quoted from when he quoted the Old Testament. It's what many of the apostles, or many times, the apostles quoted from when they were quoting from the Old Testament. It existed before the time of Christ, it's the Greek rendering of the Hebrew Old Testament. As you look through the book of Psalms, it brings you to Psalm CLI 151, which is very interesting. And it has in there as a heading above Psalm 151, it says, this psalm is a genuine one of David, though supernumerary. Now that's a fun word. It means it's beyond the number. It's beyond what is recognized as the canon of the psalm. It recognizes that. But it says it's a genuine psalm of David, and it was composed when he fought in a single combat with Goliath. And this is the psalm. It's only seven verses. I'll read it to you. It says, I was small among my brethren and youngest in my father's house. I tended my father's sheep. My hands formed a musical instrument, and my fingers tuned a psaltery. And who shall tell my Lord? The Lord himself, he himself hears. He sent forth his angel and took me from my father's sheep and anointed me with the oil of his anointing. My brothers were handsome and tall, but the Lord did not take pleasure in them. I went forth to meet the Philistine, and he cursed me by his idols. But I drew his own sword and beheaded him and removed reproach from the children of Israel. That's kind of cool. I like that one. 
We can recognize that's outside of the Bible, but it's a cool psalm, and perhaps it was genuine of David. You can make the case that that sounds like David. After defeating Goliath, I have no doubt that David wrote a song. After defeating this enemy of Israel, I have no doubt that David's instinct as a songwriter, or as Scripture calls him, the sweet psalmist of Israel, I have no doubt that his instinct was to write a song of praise. In that psalm I just read to you, David is defined by himself as a shepherd and as a musician. And that, of course, was what he was at the very beginning, a shepherd and a musician. He tuned a psaltery, it said. A psaltery. What's that? You can Google it. It's pretty interesting. But it's like a precursor to the zither or the dulcimer. It's a stringed instrument. And David tuned one. He tuned many instruments and likely wrote countless songs in his life, many inspired, but most probably weren't. Let's turn to Psalm 2, the second psalm, and let's look at that one as we consider the inspired songs of David. Psalm number 2. As we think about David's lyrical contribution to God's people, it should start with the psalms. Because 75 of the 150 psalms, that's exactly 50% of the psalms, were written by David. 75 of the 150. And he knew that he was inspired by God when he was writing one of these psalms. In 2 Samuel 23, the first two verses of that chapter, it says, Now now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, the man who was raised on high declares, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Look at what David said. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. David knew he was inspired when he wrote these psalms. And the first one of the psalms out of the 75 that David wrote in the 150 psalm book is Psalm number two. And let's read it. It says, Psalm 2, verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, that's a great song, isn't it? And so often we read through these and it doesn't seem like a song because it doesn't rhyme. And we don't have music. It doesn't seem like a song to us. In fact, that's pretty short for a song. I just read that in a minute, perhaps. But these were songs. Truly, they were songs in Israel. And this particular psalm, like many of David's, was a messianic prophecy, a prophecy about the coming Messiah, Jesus, a prophecy about his kingship. And there's an already not yet aspect to this where he's calling kings to submit to him, which is a calling that we should put forth before kings forever and ever. Yet he envisions this time where the Messiah will rule with a rod of iron and he will shatter those nations that are disobedient. And that has not yet happened. Yet the very end of this psalm, the last part of verse 12, it says, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. And that, of course, is supremely true. Well, so often David's poetry was prophetic. His inspired songs spoke of events in the future. You can turn down just a few pages to Psalm 16 where we see it again. Psalm number 16, the last two verses of that psalm is another very important messianic prophecy that's found in David's poetry, that's found in the lyrical contribution that David offered by inspiration of God. 
Psalm 16, verse 10, David writes, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Well, look at the first part of verse 10 again, or all of verse 10. David's soul will not be abandoned, and it says that he will not undergo decay. Or is it talking about him? It says his holy one. You will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. Consider Peter's commentary on this in Acts chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. It'll be up on the screen. But Peter said, Brethren, talking about this very passage, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay." This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. One of David's Psalms is one of the key Old Testament texts that predicted the resurrection. Here in Isaiah 53 are the two main texts that talked about the resurrection of the Messiah. So as a prophet and king, David was also a skilled poet, and so often much of his prophecy was found in poetry. But he really was a skilled poet, a technical poet. Hebrew is not an easy language to write poetry in. If you've ever heard Hebrew spoken, you know it's not necessarily the most beautiful language that strikes the ear. But when it comes to writing and making poetry, that's not easy. It's hard enough to do in English. Hebrew is even harder. Yet David did it because he was a true craftsman who was blessed by God to do this. And there are terms that you'll encounter in the Psalms, even now as your Bible is open to the Psalms. You can look at the headings if you have those above each Psalm, including the one above Psalm 16 that says it was a miktum of David. A miktum. That's not a word we use, but these words point to his craftsmanship, his technical skill. Sometimes you'll see that a Psalm that was written by David is a maskal, a maskal. And that word means it's a contemplative song. It's a song that you're supposed to read through and to think about how this applies to you with insight. You are to dwell on this and reflect. Psalm 32, for example, begins as a maskal of David. That's what that word means, that word maskal. Psalm 32 is what we sang last week together. Blessed is the one whose sins the Lord does not count against him. That's a good contemplative song, isn't it? To reflect on the goodness of God to forgive and to provide righteousness in place of our sins. You have this word meekdom that I just pointed out above Psalm 16. And even though it's not certain what this word means, it comes from a Hebrew word that means to be etched in stone. And some people have the theory that when it says a meekdom of David, it means this is one of his really good ones. We etched it in stone. It went platinum. Okay, So this is a really, really good one. It could also be a note about instrumentation, as we see throughout the Psalms. David had the instruments in mind as he wrote his poetry and made notes about what kind of instrumentation should be put to his songs. As you read through some Psalms, you'll see the word selah. Isn't that strange when you have to read a Psalm out loud in a Bible study setting and you're not sure, do I read that word or do I not? It's italicized and it's formatted off to the side. What does that mean? Well, the word selah is a word that means to pause and reflect. And at least in your personal reading, you should pause and reflect when you hit those and think about what you just read. You could do it in a group setting too. It wouldn't hurt any of us. As you go through the Psalms, you'll see other terms and their their meanings are lost to history, but you'll see terms like Haggion, Mahaloth, or Shemineth, words that are hard to pronounce, let alone define. But they all pointed to David's technical ability and his care when he crafted these songs to make sure they were done in the right way. And as you survey the Old Testament and go outside of the book of Psalms, you'll find that David established music, not just as poetry, but he established instrumentalism in Israel prominently. 
And he did so uniquely. He did so in a way that no other leader before him had done. He brought music to the forefront and made music a key element of the fellowship of God's people in Israel. He led among the patriarchs of their religion in putting music at the front. And to see this, I want you to turn with me to 1 Chronicles. You've got to go back from the book of Psalms, back to 1 Chronicles. And there are four passages in Chronicles that I want to show you, starting with 1 Chronicles 15. Look at how music played a role in Israel's life because of David. 1 Chronicles chapter 15, we'll look at verse 16. This is when the ark was being moved to Jerusalem. David was crafting these plans, and there are many plans that accompanied this move. And part of those plans was a particular care for music. 1 Chronicles 15, verse 16, it says, Then David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives, the singers, with instruments of music, harps, lyres, loud-sounding cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. Now, for some people, to include such instruction, instruction about music, during a time like this, it could seem like a distraction. Well, we need to move the ark to Jerusalem. We need to do this thing that God has called us to do. We need to take care of what God has given us. Music can wait. Let's wait until it all gets there, and we'll do music later when everything is settled. Some people might have such a view, but not David. And you would do well to consider yourself, why, to yourself, why not? Why didn't David have such a view? And I believe it's because David truly understood the value of music in God's program and the effect it should have on God's people, especially during landmark moments like this. How appropriate is it that we begin the Sunday morning service and song together? I think extremely, extremely important that we do that. I think, I think it's very good for us to take time to sing even when we're away from the Sunday morning service even if it's just a couple people in a living room, even if it's uh, men who are at a cabin on a retreat and there's no instrument. I think it's very good to do that. And it's good to celebrate what God has done through music as life goes on and He does more and more things in our lives. Look at chapter 16, still in First Chronicles. Chapter 16, where His instruction continues, starting in verse 4, it says that David appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord, even to celebrate and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel. Asaph the chief, you'll see his name quite a bit in the Psalms, and the second to him, Zechariah, then Jael, then Shimeroth, I'm going to just say them fast and hope it's kind of right, Jehiel, Matthiah, Eliab, Benaiah, Obed-Edom, and Jael with musical instruments, harps, lyres, also Asaph played loud-sounding cymbals, and Benaiah and Jehaziel and priests blew trumpets continually before the Ark of the Covenant of God. I knew going in I'd have to read through that, and I didn't have a plan, so that's what happened. But look at the, the focus on music here. Even loud-sounding cymbals, it says at the end of verse 5. Very appropriate for God's people to celebrate in music even with instruments at what God has done. Keep going in 1 Chronicles to chapter 23. 1 Chronicles 23. The chronicler here has a lot of emphasis on music, you'll find if you read through these books. And we continue to see this in the life of David in 1 Chronicles 23 as Solomon is taking David's place. Let's start in verse 1 down through verse 6. It says, Now when David reached old age, he made his son Solomon king over Israel. And he gathered together all the leaders of Israel with the priests and the Levites. The Levites were numbered from 30 years old and upward, and their number by census of men was 38,000. Of these, 24,000 were to oversee the work of the house of the Lord, and 6,000 were officers and judges, and 4,000 were gatekeepers, and 4,000 were praising the Lord with the instruments which David made for giving praise." David divided them into divisions according to the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. All right, so if you look at these numbers, take note that David gave over a tithe of the Levites to the ministry of music. I think it's very appropriate among God's people for there to be ministers of music. 
for those to be leading in that area to bless the people of God, to worship God, leading the people of God in that with music. And you can read all about them in 1 Chronicles 25. If you were to read through that chapter, there's a lot of music in there because of what David had established in Israel, this prominent role that music played among the people. But if we go to 2 Chronicles now, turn with me to the next book, 2 Chronicles, the last passage in Chronicles I want to show you. 2 Chronicles 29, we're going to fast forward. We're fast forwarding beyond David, beyond Solomon, to the time of Hezekiah. 2 Chronicles 29. And at this time, Israel had been very wayward. There's a lot that's happened in Israel's history. But King Hezekiah was a good king who was making reforms in Israel to bring them back to what God desired for them. And what we'll find here is that Hezekiah followed David's lead in installing music prominently in the nation. 2 Chronicles 29, starting at verse 20. It says, Then King Hezekiah arose early and assembled the princes of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, the sanctuary, and Judah. And he ordered the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. Now let's drop down to verse 25. As these offerings are happening, check this out. 2 Chronicles 29, 25. He then stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with harps, and with lyres, according to the command of David and of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan, the prophet. For the command was from the Lord through his prophets. The Levites stood with the musical instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah gave the order to offer the burnt offering on the altar. When the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord also began with the trumpets, accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. While the whole assembly worshipped, the singers also sang, and the trumpets sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. Now that would have been a sight to behold. How loud do you think that was? I think it was probably very, very loud, but very coordinated and very appropriate. And now how much more appropriate, thousands of years removed from this event, is it for us to not bring in seven of these animals and slaughter them and have a burnt offering, but to look to the final offering, to look to the cross, to look to King Jesus, and to consider His final offering for sin, once for all, applied, and to sing praises to His holy name and to come in with instruments, and to sing loudly because of what Jesus has done to put an end to sin, and to put an end to death. I mean, so appropriate that we do this, because God has designed music, and He's designed us to create music, and He's designed us to worship Him with music. That's why we do it. Well, David clearly saw the value of music, and he invested in music. It's nearly certain that David knew how to play multiple instruments. We see that a bit in Scripture. We just read how he made multiple instruments. David was not only someone who could craft uh, notes on a sheet, but he could craft the instrument that played the notes. And we could say because of that, he was not a tone-deaf believer. And that's a good goal. It's harder for some of us than for others, but it's a good goal to work toward having an ear for music. David, of course, loved the harp. That's what we saw back in 1 Samuel 16. David would play the harp for Saul. That's his beloved instrument. And apparently the psaltery was something he played too, very similar to the harp. And both, you could say, are precursors to the guitar. So I kind of like to think that if David was around today, he'd love the guitar uh, as an aspiring guitarist myself. But we also see in Scripture that he played the lyre, not L-I-A-R, Though I'm sure there were times in David's life he did play that lyre. He played the L-Y-R-E. How many times have you seen that in Scripture and thought, I don't know what that is, and I'm just going to keep reading? I know I have. Well, I do have a little video clip of someone playing an ancient Sumerian lyre. It's about a minute. So let's go ahead and enjoy, enjoy that. Go ahead, Joseph. Thank you. 
I think that's pretty cool. <clears throat> um, so probably something similar to that is what David and others had in view when they talked about the lyre. And you can see with a video like that how music can so easily captivate us, can it? We can be entertained by music. We can be moved by music. We can be stirred and soothed emotionally by music because God designed it that way. If you were to look at Psalm 150, that one does exist. Okay, Psalm 150, you can read through and see it says, praise the Lord, and it lists all kinds of instruments, those that we've already looked at here this morning, like the trumpet or the stringed instruments or the cymbals, but it also adds, praise the Lord with the tambourine, praise Him with the pipes. There are many ways that we are to praise the Lord with instruments. And you get the feeling that in these moments when they were praising the Lord with the instruments that were in Israel, it was very diversified, it was very loud, but it was appropriate for the time. Diversified, loud, appropriate. And I think those are good words to put together when it comes to praising the Lord. And I do say uh, appropriate again as we consider what would be appropriate with music, because not all music is appropriate at all times. Uh, consider Ecclesiastes 3.4 that says that there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. In Proverbs 25.20 says something similar. It says, like one who takes off a garment on a cold day or vinegar on soda, that's the one who sings songs to a troubled heart. Okay? We recognize that it's not appropriate to sing joy to the world at a funeral, or most funerals anyway, that it's not appropriate, Right? Singing songs to a troubled heart, that's what that means. But there are sad songs that help us through sad times. And we need to keep our music appropriate. The Bible does too, I'll just make a quick footnote about this. The Bible also talks about dancing when it talks about music. And this is where we can get really uncomfortable because we tend to be a little stiff. And dancing is talked about in there in Psalm 150. Praise Him with dancing. Okay. That naturally goes with music, doesn't it? Dancing is also a creation of God for His glory appropriately. <laughs> well, as we close and consider application for ourselves, let me share with you uh, some thoughts from others. Uh, Martin Luther said this. This is pretty to the point as most things that Martin Luther said. Luther said, For God has made our hearts and spirits happy through His dear Son, whom He has delivered up, that we might be redeemed from sin, death, and the devil. He who believes this sincerely and earnestly cannot help but be happy. He must cheerfully sing and talk about this, that others might hear it and come to Christ. If any would not sing and talk of what Christ has wrought for us, he shows thereby that he does not really believe. Ooh, a shot from Martin Luther. Not perhaps the most pastoral way of putting that, but I think still a good thing to say and for us to consider. You know there will be songs in heaven, right? And in the new earth for eternity there will be singing. This creation of God will go on and on, just like His Word will go on and on, just like His people will go on and on. And so you might as well start now when it comes to singing, right? And reflect on the gospel. The gospel pushes us to sing because we were wired to sing. We were wired to participate in music, and we should do so in praise. Another way of putting this, uh, Richard Pratt, a more modern commentator, he said, believers are to make music in their hearts to the Lord with psalms and spiritual songs. All of God's people are to celebrate the greatness of God in song. It's for all of us, not just some of us, but for all of us. So my encouragement to you is to use music and other art as a means of worship, as a means of edification for yourself and for others. You know that of all the Old Testament books that Jesus quoted, he quoted most from the song book, the book of Psalms. Jesus liked songs. You should too. And you should start with the book of Psalms. It would be a very good place to begin. I want to encourage you to produce something, as David did, that others can sing or be edified by in the truth. We don't think too much about ourselves writing songs, but we should. We don't think too much about ourselves writing poetry, 
or music, but we should. What did David have as an instinct? Now, he was gifted by God for this, but his instinct was to write songs. You too can write songs that can edify others. It's a little bit of a risk you might feel. You're putting yourself out there. But God uses songs among his people. In fact, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, when you guys come together, some of you have a prophecy, some have a tongue, some have a message, some have a song. So even in the New Testament, it's appropriate that believers write songs. We can do it. It's good. And this strengthens the worldview. Art, in all of its forms, including music, can strengthen the Christian message, can strengthen us in our faith. Consider how God might use you for that. Take the style that God has given you in your context to reach people in your context. As we continue to read about the life of David and see how David was used by God to make music, to edify Israel, and to declare his glory in the world, think of how he would do that in your life too. When we read Psalm 2 and he was speaking to kings, saying kings need to bow down, that was a song. You can write a song to the world calling them to believe in Christ. You could do that. It's good. Now, you won't be inspired like David was, but it can still be good. Okay? So consider how God would use music in your life and do it for his glory. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you. We come to you grateful because you are the God of all creation. And I thank you for the example that you gave us in the life of David to show how music is so important to your creation and how you've designed it to encourage and edify us to communicate truth to our hearts, and to reach people far from you. Help us, Lord, to this week be encouraged through music, to see the beauty and truth and harmony in your design through music, and help us to truly sing, to desire to sing, to honor you with this voice you've given us, the living God. Help us to lift you up high even now as we go to a time of song. Lord, you've ordained whatever comes to pass, even our next steps. We trust you, we love you, and ask your blessing on us as we seek to glorify your name. We pray this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.